The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. So I invite you to open to Philippians 2 if you haven't yet. Uh, I've mentioned several times to you that I grew up in rural South Georgia. Uh, I spent my summers swimming in creeks, shooting anything that moved, and riding four-wheelers. I know that's hard to believe since I have so successfully shed my deep southern accent. Maybe I will play it for you one day. It does exist on many recordings. But every kid that I knew growing up owned a four-wheeler. And so my parents, not wanting my brother or myself to feel left out, sacrificed greatly to purchase us a Honda 70. For those of you who are unfamiliar with four-wheeler speak, the higher the number, the larger the four-wheeler. 70 is not a large number. This is like a souped-up power wheels. This thing was tiny. All of my friends, their four-wheelers were like two to three times the size of this thing, which presented a major obstacle in our primary activity of enjoyment with four-wheelers, namely mud-bogging, or as I was promptly educated upon moving to Alabama, y'all call it mudden. Why? Why? Anyway. Mud bogging. Uh, and here's the deal. Like, no matter how much I, I longed for my little Honda 70 to be successful at this activity, it simply did not have the power to do what my heart longed for it to do. It wasn't my fault. Like, I could know, like intellectually, because it's a very intellectual activity, I could know intellectually all I needed to about mud bogging. I could know, like, what routes to take and when to gun it and how to turn and slide. I could be shown, not just know, but I could be shown experientially examples from my friends doing it all day long. I could see the paths they took, what maneuvers they made. But no matter how much I knew intellectually or no matter how much I was shown experientially, my four-wheeler simply did not have the necessary power and it would get stuck or literally sunk every time. So this morning... As we pick back up in our journey through Paul's letter to the Philippians, we took a break for Advent, we're back this morning, and as we pick back up, I kind of feel like I did as a kid with my Honda 70 four-wheeler. Like throughout this letter, Paul has been striving for the Philippians and for us to know intellectually. He's been striving for us to know how to be a people of joy in Jesus. And he's been striving to show, to show us experientially what it looks like to be a people of joy in Jesus. But no, no matter how many truths I know, or no matter how many examples I'm shown, I don't know about you, but I'm left feeling like I simply lack the power to be a person of joy in Jesus. Like the muck of this life gets me stuck or sunk every single time. And I'm left wanting to say to Paul, Paul, I know intellectually the truths you've been teaching. I, I know truths that he has laid out for us like we are to be a people that are distinct and different in this world by not having a joy like this world. This world's joy is either flimsy or flippant. Those are the only two types of joy this world knows. Flimsy joy that's dependent upon surrounding circumstances or flippant joy that ignores and pretends like surrounding circumstances are okay. Paul says we're to be distinct and different because we are to be a people who have a firm, foundational joy in the never-changing Christ. 
And when we have that, Paul says, here's the truth. When we have that, it displays the worth of Jesus to the world. Our joy acts like a sign displaying the worth of Jesus to the the world. Paul, I know those truths intellectually. And I know other truths you've taught us intellectually. Like I know it's right for me to have this kind of joy. No matter what my circumstances are. Good, bad, or otherwise. Because I know intellectually that God is sovereign. And He's sovereignly working all things together for the glory of Christ, which is my greatest good. If Jesus is my joy, then when Christ is glorified, my joy is magnified. My joy wins. Like I know that. Intellectually. I don't just know that intellectually. Paul, I want to say to him, you've shown that to me. Like experientially, Paul has used himself as an example, reinterpreting the events of his own life through the lens of the glory of Christ. If you remember, Paul is in prison right now in Rome. But he's reinterpreted that through the lens of Jesus' glory. He says, my imprisonment is actually for the glory of Christ. People are being saved out of this. The gospel's going forward out of this. In Rome, in the Roman church itself, Paul has rival preachers opposing him, trying to inflict more hurt upon his heart while he's in prison. But Paul looks at that and says, I can see the gospel going forward through that. I can see Jesus being glorified through that. Like Paul is showing us how every single circumstance in his life is being sovereignly used by God for the glory of Christ. And if Jesus is glorified, Paul's joy is magnified, his joy wins. Paul says, even if I live or die, I know Christ is going to be glorified either way. And so I rejoice. My joy wins. I want to say, Paul, you you have taught me these truths intellectually. You have shown me these truths experientially. But how? How are we supposed to live them in reality? Because if I'm honest, my Honda 70 heart just doesn't have the power. Paul's even actually taught us a little bit about how we're supposed to be empowered to do this. I don't know if you remember, but by the time we got to the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, Paul taught us some more things that we know intellectually. Paul told us God provides the power for you to pursue a life of joy by His Holy Spirit through His people. Paul showed us this is what God's doing in his own life while he's in jail. God is pouring out power into Paul's life through the people of God, by His Spirit. People are praying for him. People are proclaiming the truth of the gospel to him. People are coming to be present with him. And Paul looks at Philippi and he looks at us at the end of chapter 1 and he says, this is how God is going to empower you to be a people of joy. Through one another. As you sacrifice yourselves for one another, as you take the way of the cross for one another, as you don't seek your own best interest, but you seek one another, you sacrifice yourself to pray for one another, to proclaim the gospel to one another, to be present in one another's lives. You seek one another's joy in Jesus. And Paul didn't just teach us that truth intellectually. He showed it to us experientially by holding up the greatest example of taking the way of the cross, the cross itself. In Philippians 2, 5 through 11, the great Christ hymn, Paul holds up Jesus Christ and he says, you, Philippi, you, Shades, have this mind in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. He humbled himself. He became obedient to God to the point of death for your eternal joy. That's that's the truth intellectually of how you take the way to joy. That's, That's me showing it to you experientially and again, I want to say to Paul, I know these truths 
You've shown me these truths. But how are we supposed to be empowered to live them in reality? How are we, Shades Valley, going to be empowered to take the way of the cross? How are you, me, how are we going to be empowered not to seek our own interests, but to sacrifice ourselves for the interest of one another, each other's joy in Jesus? How are our Honda 70 hearts supposed to have that kind of power? I believe that in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul unpacks what empowers us to live a life of joy. We're going to spend the rest of our time unpacking it this morning. Look at it with me. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is it my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, early on in this sermon series, I started pointing at these two verses. I don't know if you remember, but I started pointing forward to them, and I told almost any time we ever talked about obeying a command, working, putting forth effort, striving for something, joy being put into action, I started pointing forward towards these verses to tell us that these verses fly like a banner over the entire Christian life. Any time we're going to talk about living the Christian life, proactively acting, obeying a command, putting forth effort, we've got to put it through the lens of Philippians 2, 12 and 13. These fly like a banner over the entire Christian life because they summarize how we live the Christian life day by day, moment by moment. It's not, it's not that these verses contain some type of magical key to unlocking the secret of the Christian life. If anyone ever tells you that they have found a verse or a short little packet of verses that unlocks the key to Christian spirituality, it doesn't. God didn't give you a book because you needed a verse. Like bumper sticker theology is bad. Life is complex. Truth is complex. The reality of God that governs and holds this entire universe together and works through your own life, it's, it takes some digging into. What I mean when I say that these verses fly like a banner over the entire Christian life is not that they're like this magical key. No, I mean that they summarize very succinctly a truth that you can find all over Scripture. It's just summarized really nicely for us right here. What truth is that? It's the truth about effort. The truth about God's empowerment and the effectual truth that connects the two. Those are the three things we're about to walk through for the rest of our time. Three things that we see right here in these verses. The truth about our effort, the truth about God's empowerment, and the effectual truth that connects the two. Let's tackle these one at a time. First, the truth about our effort. Look again at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. Therefore, Paul's connecting this back to what he's just said through verses 5 to 11. That's the Christ hymn, where he gave us this beautiful example of Christ being obedient. You've seen Christ be obedient to the point of death. Therefore, Philippi, you be obedient doesn't matter if I'm there or not. Just as you've seen Christ obey, you obey 
What does that mean for them? It means that they are to work out their own salvation. Okay. Obey. Work. Effort. These are words that make many Christians nervous. Because on the surface, they seem opposed to one of our other favorite words. Grace. Grace means unearned. Unmerited. Grace is a gift. You can't work for it. You can't obey for it. No amount of effort can earn grace. And we believe that we are saved by grace. Salvation is a gift from God through Jesus Christ. Jesus did all the work, all the obedience required to save us through his death and resurrection. We don't work for salvation. We receive it as a gift of God's grace. Yes! And amen! I believe that. Paul believes that. The Bible teaches that. But none of that is opposed to the word, the use of the words obey, work, and effort. Paul commands the Philippians to obey. Jesus commands us to obey. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. He, he commands us to teach people his commands. The Great Commission. Go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded is the word. All that I have commanded you. Like Jesus and Paul, they don't have a problem with obedience. They don't have a problem with effort either. Paul compares the Christian life to a race to be run, to a fight to be fought. By the time we get to Philippians chapter 3, he's going to talk constantly about pressing on. I press on to receive the prize for which God has called me heavenward. Jesus compares the Christian life to a narrow road that is hard. If your theology, I'm, I'm going to state this carefully. If your theology has no place for obeying commands, no place for effort, then it has no place for Jesus and the Great Commission, no place for Paul, and no place for the Bible. Parts of the Bible, maybe. You've got to ignore or pull a Thomas Jefferson and cut out a lot of parts that you don't like. Like, why are we so allergic to the notion of obedience, work, and effort? I believe it is because we have a truncated, a shortened, not a full view. We have a truncated view of salvation, and we have a truncated view of grace. We'll tackle the first one for right now. We'll get back to the other one. We're going to do a lot of systematic theology today. I'm sorry. Buckle up. Take notes. It might help. We have a truncated view of salvation. In other words, we equate salvation with justification. Justification, nice, big, fancy theology word. It simply just means being declared to have a right standing with God. We all know what it means to try and justify ourselves, to say that we're in the right justification is being declared to be in a right standing a right relationship with god because of what jesus did on the cross he took on your sin and the death that it deserved and he gave you his righteousness his rightness so that you're right with god justified you stand in a position before god wearing the holiness of christ you are another way we could say this is you are positionally holy you have been saved 
That's past tense when we talk about justification. You have been saved from the penalty of your sin. That's what justification is. However, all too often we act as if that is all salvation is. And this is why we, I know, it makes me cough too. He's fine. That's his way of saying amen, and I love to hear it. Or she. All too often we act as if this is all salvation is. And this is why we get nervous about using words like obey, work, and effort. Because justification is based solely on Christ's obedience, work, and effort. We don't want anyone getting confused thinking they have to work in order to be justified. They've got to put forth effort to make themselves right with God. And that's gloriously true. I don't want anyone getting confused about that. But justification is not all there is to salvation. Scripture says so much more. Salvation is not merely justification, but it is also sanctification. Sanctification. Sanctification is God's work of making you practically holy. If justification is you being positionally holy, declared in a right standing before God, sanctification is that playing out practically every day. God conforming you more and more to look like His Son, Jesus Christ. God growing you to be more like Christ. God growing you progressively, practically in holiness. We might say, you are being saved. That's present tense. Versus justification, past tense, you've been saved from the penalty of sin. Sanctification, present tense, you are being saved from the power of sin, experientially, practically, Day by, this is a day-by-day day process in which you are learning to obey and follow Jesus. We might say it this way, you are working out your salvation. Working it out in every area of your life. You're learning to obey and follow Christ. But even this isn't all there is to salvation. Salvation is not merely justification and sanctification, but it concludes in glorification glorification being glorified being made perfectly holy this is a future thing one day when we are with christ whether it's through his return or through our death one day when we are with christ we will not just be positionally holy not just practically holy but we will be made perfectly holy we will be saved future tense we will be saved from the very presence of sin Salvation will be full and final when we are fully and finally with Christ. Justification, sanctification, glorification. You have been saved. You're being saved. You will be saved. This is what we mean by the word salvation. Even that is slightly truncated. There's even more. But it's all we got time for this morning. So, in Philippians 2.12, when Paul tells us to work out our own salvation, we know he doesn't mean justification. That was achieved by the work of Christ. It's past tense. We also know he doesn't mean glorification. Because that won't become a reality until we are with Christ. So we know he means sanctification. Sanctification becoming 
like Christ. Indeed, we can know that just from the context. This is what he's just talked about, remember? Back in verses 5 through 11, he held up Christ and his obedience in going to the cross. He held that up as an example, and now he's saying, therefore, you've seen his obedience, therefore you obey. Therefore, work out your salvation. Therefore, grow in Christ's likeness. Therefore, grow in sanctification. Paul's just held up Jesus as an example of obedience and says, you obey. How? By working out your salvation, your sanctification into every area of your life. The Greek word right here for work literally means to affect something, to produce it, to to bring it about. The Greek scholar Peter O'Brien says that, he, he describes it this way, it's a continuous, sustained, strenuous effort. Paul is calling for the Philippians to work, to strive, to put forth effort into living the life of joy that he has laid out before them. Paul is telling us, Shades, the truths that I have made known intellectually and the truths that I have shown experientially, we, Shades, are to work, to strive, to put forth effort into living them out in reality. That is the truth about effort. The Christian life is not passive, where you just wait for God to snap His fingers and and get rid of all of your sin and fill you up with joy all the day long. It is not a let go and let God, if you've heard that bumper sticker theology before. It's not the Christian life. The Christian life is a race to be run, a fight to be fought. It's a pressing on. It's a life of effort, which I know the problems that's causing for you. Because it's causing them for me too. As soon as I say all of that, it leaves me going, then the Christian life is not for me. Because I can't live this. I've tried tried to live Christ-like, and all of my efforts end up like my Honda 74-wheeler, stuck or sunk in the muck of life. Could it be? Could that be because my efforts have not been empowered efforts? This is where we need to see the second truth this morning. Not just the truth about our effort, but secondly, the truth about God's empowerment. We need to see the truth about God's empowerment. Paul didn't put his pen down after verse 12. Work out your own salvation. All right, get to it. It wasn't, it wasn't done. As soon as he tells us to obey and to put forth effort and work out our salvation, he says this in verse 13. Four grounding clause. Gotta love a good grounding clause. My life hangs on these clauses right here. For, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. For, or because. In other words, Paul says, you can obey. You can work. You can put forth effort because God Himself is empowering your efforts. He is empowering your obedience. 
His working is empowering your working. God is providing everything you need to do what He's calling you to do. He he is empowering you freely. You didn't earn a right to that power. You didn't do something to deserve that. It's grace. It's it's grace. I told you that I think Christians can be allergic to the notion of obedience, work, and effort because we have a truncated view of salvation and because we have a truncated view of grace. What do I mean by that? We tend to equate grace with pardon. So just like we equate salvation with justification, we equate grace with pardon. Through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we're justified, set free from the penalty of our sin. All of that is pardoned. And that is grace. Yes. And amen. But that is not all that grace is. For on the cross... Jesus did not, as we've said, He did not just purchase our justification. No, He purchased all of salvation. He purchased our sanctification and our glorification. He purchased full and final salvation. Which means that in His death and resurrection, He purchased, yes, our pardon from sin, but He also purchased every ounce of power needed to bring us safely through this life. And He purchased the promise that we would be forever with Him. Justification does me no good if Christ has not also purchased my sanctification and glorification. Great, you made me right with God. I will spend the rest of my life screwing that up. Unless you are sanctifying me, sustaining me all the way home. Unless you've promised that I'll get there. I, I, am, I am done unless Jude 24 is true. Now unto Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you faultless before the presence of His glory with great joy to Him the only God our Father, the eternal Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, be glory and majesty and dominion both now and before all time and forever. Justification means nothing if that is not also true. In the death and resurrection of Jesus, He purchased our pardon from sin, every ounce of power needed to bring us safely, all the way to the promise He purchased of us being with Him forever. Grace is not just being freely, undeservedly pardoned. It is also being freely, undeservedly empowered to live the Christian life. It is also being freely and undeservedly given the promise to come all the way home to be forever with Christ. And all of that was purchased for you by Christ on the cross. 1 Peter 3.18 Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? Why did He do it? So that you just might be justified? No. So that you might also be sanctified? Yeah, but more. So that you might get all the way home to God. That's what He says. Christ suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. So that He might bring us to God all the way no dropouts 
pardoned from sin, empowered every step of the journey, promised to make it all the way home. This is grace. This is Philippians 1.6. He who began the good work of justification in you, he will bring it all the way through sanctification, all the way home to glorification. He who began a good work in you will bring it to the day of completion in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's what he died for. It's what he purchased. And this is the grace that Paul is describing in Philippians 2.13. Christian, work out your salvation. Work out becoming like Jesus. Work out having joy in Jesus in every square inch of your life. For it is God who works in you graciously, freely, empowering your efforts by his grace. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. We're not talking about earning anything here. We're talking about being given everything, even the power by which you are walking. Grace doesn't eliminate effort. It empowers it. You might say, John, if I'm being given everything through grace, then why why do I need to exert effort? That's not how grace works. Grace doesn't eliminate effort. It empowers it. The truth is all over Scripture. I'll give you just three. 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says, I worked. I worked harder than all the other apostles. You want to see my preaching schedule? You want to see the travel log? You want to see the persecution log? I worked harder than any of the other apostles, though it was not I. But the grace The grace of God that is with me. Grace empowers effort. It's not just how it worked for Paul. It's how it works for you. 1 Peter chapter 4 tells us that God empowers different gifts in every believer by His grace. It's by His great and varied grace that He empowers gifts. So that, verse 11 says, we serve, we serve. We put forth effort. We serve by the strength that God supplies. Grace empowers effort. Hebrews 13.21, last one I'll give you. Hebrews 13.21 says that God will equip you. God will do this. He will equip you with every good thing so that you may do. You. So that you may do His will. Because He is working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. You do His will. Because He's working in you. Grace empowers effort. This is the truth about empowerment. The Christian life is not lived in my power. All of my efforts will fail apart from the empowerment of God. Jesus said that, John 15, 5. Apart from me, you're like a vine, or you're like a branch in a vine, and apart from me you can do nothing. All my efforts will fail apart from the empowerment of God. This is the truth about empowerment. And so, the final question becomes, what connects God's power with our efforts? Jonathan, you've said, we've got to exert effort. But unempowered effort, no good. You said God will empower all of our efforts. What, what connects these two? I get these truths intellectually and show me examples of them all day long. 
But how do I live this experientially? What brings the power, the empowerment of God into my efforts? This is where we need to see the third and final truth this morning. We must see the effectual truth that connects our effort and God's empowerment. We've got to see the effectual truth. What is it that connects our efforts and God's empowerment? I believe we see it in a little phrase that we have been ignoring up until now. Look at verse 12 again. Scripture says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you. With fear and trembling. In the Greek, that little phrase actually comes first. Greek gets to to cheat in comparison to English. In English, we depend very heavily on, sentence, on word order in sentence in order to derive the proper meaning. Um, Greek doesn't operate like that at all. Greek is what's called a highly inflected language. It means that the form of the word determines what part of speech it plays. So they get to play with word order way more than we do, unless you're Yoda. So, it may not make good English, but that little phrase with fear and trembling actually comes first in the Greek text. The text literally would read like this. With fear and trembling, your own salvation, work it out. Why do I bring that up? Because before you are told to put forth effort, you are told the manner in which this effort is to be exerted with fear and trembling. Why? Because, remember that good grounding clause? Because when you put forth effort, God Almighty is empowering it. Like, do you... Do you get what Paul is saying? You've got to back up just a little bit to get the full force of this. We've recalled this several times, but one more time, recall that in verses 5 through 11, Paul's just described the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the resurrection, Paul described as God the Father exalting Christ above all creation by His power. Therefore, you feel the transition into what we're reading. The Father exalted Christ above everything by His power. Therefore, with fear and trembling, work out your salvation for that same powerful God who exalted Christ over all creation, raising Him from the dead, that same God is working that same power in you. Fear and trembling are meant to be the manner of our efforts because our efforts are done in faith that God is empowering them. Fear and trembling equals faith. Do you see that right here? God and all His power raised Christ. So with fear and trembling, with faith that it's that God working in you, with faith, in faith put forth effort. Because God, that God is at work in and through you. 
fear and trembling equal faith. Faith is the effectual truth that connects our efforts with God's empowerment. Do you see that, Shades? I want us to see this is the banner that flies over the entire Christian life. I believe this is how we live. We're told explicitly many times we are a people that live by faith. This is what it means to live by faith. Paul is saying to Philippi and to us, everything that God has called you to do, this entire life of joy, He has promised to provide the power for every ounce of it. And this power is delivered into our lives through faith in His promise. We obey in faith. We put forth effort in faith. And through faith, God provides the promised power. It's like, it's like when I throw my three-year-old Asher in the air. I throw him, I invite him to be thrown to feel my power. From his perspective, it's powerful. Just go with it, okay? I invite him to feel my power through a promise. A promise will throw you. A promise I'll catch you. A promise it'll be fun. If he does not believe my promise, power is quenched and not exerted in his life but if by faith he obeys the command he experiences the power the power is delivered into his life through his faith in my promise do you see how that works This is how the entire Christian life works. Not by you striving to do everything merely in your own power apart from God. No. That leads to legalism, among other things. If you think the Christian life is going to be used, it's going to be lived in your own power, you have to have a very small view of sin. Something you think you can conquer by yourself. You have to have a very small view of grace. Something you don't need. No, the Christian life is not lived by yourself in your own power, nor is the Christian life lived passively by letting go and letting God. That leads to license. At least it doesn't matter what I do. You know, God's doing it all by His power, and so I can just kind of whatever. If you want to live that way, you have to have a very small view of sin. Sin isn't really a problem in my life anymore. I've let go and let God. I don't really experience that anymore. You have to have a very small view of grace. Grace isn't really going to empower effort in me. It's just pardon. That's all I need. The Christian life is not dependent solely upon our action apart from the power of God, nor is it lived passively by letting go and letting God. The Christian life is not you do everything, nor is it you do nothing. No, the Christian life is you do all because God is doing all in you and through you. This is how we live by faith. Need an example? I, I, I have an example for you. Okay, I, Right here, right now, this. This is an example. I pray how I am living right now in this moment, Shades, is an example of what I'm talking about right here. Me preaching. Is this my effort or God's empowerment? I pray it is not merely my effort. 
If it is, it's utterly useless. Preaching is powerless apart from the work of the Holy Spirit of God. Scripture is clear about that. It totally depends upon the power of God. So does that mean that I don't have to put forth any effort? Just in my study this week, I was playing around with my Rubik's Cube. I really do have a Rubik's Cube in my study. Saying, well, preaching depends upon the power of God, so I'm going to work this one more time and we'll just kind of see what happens. No. All of my effort to study, to show myself approved, a workman unto God who need not be ashamed, who's able to rightly handle the word of truth and present it to you, all of my study, all of my prayer and and hitting my knees, all of that, even now, all of my proclamation in this moment, all of that effort is done with fear and trembling faith in the promise of God that He is the one who will work His power through my efforts. I don't, often when I'm doing this in my own personal life, I, we've got big general promises. What we've been going over right here in Philippians 2, 12, and 13, it's a big general promise that God will provide everything you need for all He's called you to do. But what I will often do in my own life when doing something like this, like preaching, is I will go in search of a very specific promise for the provision of power for this moment. I'll go somewhere like Isaiah 55, 11. My word, my word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it, and I will step into this pulpit believing that promise. I got faith in that promise. God has promised to work His power through the preached Word. And I do what I do, believing that promise, and I experience His power being delivered into my life through faith in His promises. This is how we live. This is how I live the Christian life. It's how I believe Scripture teaches us from cover to cover to live the Christian life. Because I don't believe that Empowered preaching is the only thing that's supposed to be empowered. I think the entire Christian life is meant to be empowered. This is how joy in Jesus works itself out into every square inch of our lives. This is how we work out our salvation. We do it with fear and trembling, with faith that God is the one powerfully working in us. Do you long, shades, for God to work like this in you? Do you long Do you desire for God to work like this in you? If you do, I'm pulling a trick on you right now. I want you to seriously answer that question. Do you long, do you desire for God to work like this in you? If you do, then I promise you His powerful work has already begun. I know that because of how verse 13 ends. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. The very will or desire to work out your salvation, to follow God in sanctification, to have joy in Jesus in every area of your life, that very will or desire is the work of God. God works in you both to will, to give you that desire, that will, 
that want to and to carry it all the way out to where that will becomes a work. God works powerfully in you both to will and to work. No human being naturally wants joy in Jesus. They want joy in anything and everything else. Scripture's very clear on that. The desire that God that is already powerfully stirring up in your heart, God is working that desire, that willing. If He is already working that desire in your heart, trust Him that He can empower that will to become a work. He can empower you to work out your salvation, your joy in Jesus. It's His good pleasure. That's another way of saying His will. It's His good pleasure, His will to do that. To work out joy in Jesus into every area of your life shades may we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling with faith and the reality that it is god who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure may our efforts be empowered through effectual faith